1: You'll know already that I'm quite a fan of queer theory, and that I've been rather taken by theoretical explanations that affirm what we feel to be true about the world around us. But what I've realized recently is that the queer theory I've been metabolizing is actually rather grounded. Even when it looks beyond the present, it's still concerned with understanding and changing for the better our material realities here on Earth. But what about realities we can't necessarily see, live, or touch? Can we look at the stars queerly? And if so, how might queer stargazing help orient us towards earthly liberation? To help me answer these questions is Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein, a theoretical cosmologist and particle physicist. Her book, The Disordered Cosmos, presents a black queer feminist challenge to the dominant understanding of physics and calls for a more robust and intersectional approach to ensuring the sciences and the night sky are available to all. Three lessons in particular stand out to me from this conversation. The first is that science is queer. If we understand queerness as a refusal to aspire to the norm, then the insatiable curiosity that queerness demands is well-suited to a science like physics. Indeed, physics is perhaps the most difficult and ever-changing of the sciences, and physics is us. The second lesson is personal. Ahead of my conversation with Chanda, I told her I was feeling nervous. I'm not a quote unquote scientist. Do I have what it takes to hold space for her enchantment with something I don't fully understand? Chanda assured me that I don't have to pass a physics test to understand what lights her up or to read her book. And so I was reminded of something Mary Oliver wrote. The touch of our separate excitements is another of the gifts of our life together. The third lesson is that physics is the science concerned with how the universe behaves. And whether through scientific inquiry, poetry, or lived experience, is that not the work we're engaged in together here? Our conversation today explores how Star Trek upholds and challenges ideas about who is representative of the human race. How queer black feminisms have taught Chanda to look at the stars in more generative ways. And why dreaming of a future where every black child has access to the dark night sky requires robust interventions across culture and society right now? I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, thank you so much for accepting this invitation to be in conversation with me and Busy Being Black listeners. I'm really honored to have you here.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: To open the show, I normally ask all of my guests the same question. How's your heart?
2: Well, that feels like such a, 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 I don't know, I'm sure it's a big question every day in whatever time. I'm am- I was really uh, crying pretty hard yesterday when I saw the news about the PrEP ruling in Texas, Mm. Um, which I guess timestamps when we're doing this recording. I am old enough that I lived through a lot of the 80s and I watched people die um, uh, from, from complications associated with AIDS. Um, and even like, you know, I know that language, which i I'm, I think that shows my age in a way. um, and the thought of people dying like that again, totally unnecessarily. um, so anything, anyway, I think my my heart is there. i I will also say that I've been kind of amused by um post-colonial Twitter's reaction to the news about um, the Queen today. So I guess it's that's giving my heart a little bit of levity as as I'm someone of of Caribbean descent and um, I spent part of my childhood in an Irish and Caribbean neighborhood in London in, in Kilburn in London. So my heart is warm with them.
1: <laughs> yeah. I um, I got the New York Times notification um, this afternoon. And my initial response was "huzzah," <laughs> you <Yes. laughs> know. Um, <laughs> well,
2: for you, as an Irish person, I'm sure, right?
1: Like-, <laughs> right? like, and as a Black American, right? Like that, you know that, yeah. I, that I that I hold those two histories in my body, um, mm-hmm. and and that genealogy as well. Um, and I'm a staunch uh, abolitionist. Um, I think the monarchy is an absolute joke and a, a violence that continues. But it's just—it's so weird to be like a queer black man in the UK who is black American, but also like Irish British and and to be among and continuing to come of age in a country that is really so beside itself with cognitive dissonance and with ignorance and this lavish and kind of almost rabid um support that British people tend to, to lavish on the, the monarchy is, 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 it's infuriating sometimes. And so moments like today, I felt a little guilty, but I was like, good. I hope that, I hope this is an opportunity for us also (laughs) to talk about the ravages of the monarchy.
2: I definitely, I think I went back to, um, in my brain to some of the great footage we saw of how uh, Scottish people responded to Margaret Thatcher's passing. (laughs) And I actually think I'm just going to look some of that video up because, um, I'm, I I I love that part of the aisles. <laughs> yeah.
1: The, I think the Scots are quite funny. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about how to begin this conversation. And it's always the the part of convening these conversations that troubles me the most. Like, how do how do we, after the how's your heart question, how do we launch into what can be a very numinous and tender and rigorous conversation? But I've been finding myself increasingly noticing my enchantment. And just to give you a really recent example, um, I, I go to the gym most mornings, and I have to walk along the River Wensum, and the River Wensum kind of winds through Norwich. It's a beautiful river, and and on my route, I get to see um, geese and swans and cygnets from spring right through to fall. And I, for some reason, this year I noticed it more than others. And the other day I saw these signets and their gray is turning into white and they're waddling into the river and they're actually bigger than their parents. And I just stood there and I was like, and they were flapping their wings. and I was like, oh my God, they're so huge. And they were just little babies before. And I was so enchanted and just kind of like skipped along to the gym. I'm curious about what's enchanting you at the moment.
2: Well, so I guess another timestamp for, for today, uh, we are recording on Star Trek day. So Star Trek Trek premiered 56 years ago today in, in 1966. Um, and so uh, on NBC color TV Hmm. and, um, I'm like a Star Trek convention attending nerd. I actually just came back from the convention a week and a half ago.
1: Um,
2: so I, I've i actually, you know, it's always like this big emotional come down from being in the bubble that is the convention space and the way that that convention brings together people who have, um, certain sets of principles. It's a very, um, an increasingly queer space, but I think it's always like, for me, it's a pride event. And, um, you know, one of the ways that I, I deal with that or I'm dealing with at this time is that I'm rewatching, um, episodes and, um, I've been rewatching Star Trek Discovery, one of the newer shows, um which has the first black woman lead in in Star Trek history, Saniqua Martin Green, and I just love Saniqua so much. There are lots of like critical comments that I could make about the pacing of the writing in the show and um I think it's lord laden with corporate burdens from its paramount parents um, in ways that um, are unfair to Michael Burnham, the character that Sinequa plays. But first of all, I love that we have like a Black woman named Michael. Like I yes. love kind of the, <laughs> the gender play inherent to it. Um, and I think th- on this watch in particular, I'm appreciating the performances of the actors. I feel really enchanted by that. I feel even like Wilson Cruz, um, you know, who is an Afro-Latino um performer who was like maybe the first queer person of color i ever saw on television and when he um played ricky on my so-called life
1: um (laughs) and he
2: was one of the first like actors of color to come out as as queer in in a very public way i am seeing him and anthony rap have this beautiful gay ass love story um in space i'm there are moments when like they gave Wilson a terrible wig for one scene and the acting is so good that for a second you forget about the wig and there's something (laughs) like I will just say there's something (laughs) enchanting about having that ability (laughs)
1: yeah (laughs) yeah I, I thought Star Trek Discovery I think Star Trek Discovery was tremendous um I too loved um love Sonequa and um questionable wigs too um
2: (laughs) we could just like i i there was actually a question about this during the convention um there was a fan question to the panel that wilson and sonequa were on that actually unfortunately one of the white actors hijacked in like a not great way um but it's very clear from what both Wilson and Senequa said, look at me talking to them like I really know them. I'm mutuals and with you, Wilson that's on that's Twitter.
1: How Dr. Jafari Allen would. would, would, so that's, would
2: that's true. I'm just there's a disco ball between us. That's <laughs> that's, that's what I will say. Um but they talked, I think that the actors have advocated for the the black, the phys, the black physicality of the characters to be allowed to live. In, in the show. And that that has been part of the ongoing story is, um, you know, for the last season, um Sonequa Martin-Green, Michael Burnham was in braids. And that was, I think, a very intentional choice on Sonequa's part that she advocated for.
1: Right. We all have, many of us have a Star Trek story. We know why we're enchanted by Star Trek or why it means something to us. What's that story for you?
2: I think Star Trek is an interesting intellectual playground um in that it it pushes boundaries and and it has traditionally pushed boundaries anyways and pushed us to think about how our society is how we can be our best version of ourselves what it means to be um a species a collective species um it imagines this like socialist future it asks what might be the problems in the socialist future i think that um, they too often shy away from some of those questions about like the, some of the authoritarian tendencies that come out in the Federation, like that's a that's a huge plot point in season two of Discovery, and it pops up occasionally in episodes of of the next generation. Um, I think an interesting comment was made to me I one of the great things about the convention is that you end up standing in line a lot. Um, while waiting for autographs, and I was standing in line for um, Anthony Rapp's autograph, and it happened to be that I was standing next to another black queer woman, um, and so we became friends. Her name is Darlene, and. Um, she was telling me that there are like three categories of people who come to the convention. And so part of it is figuring out like which category someone is in. And one of those categories are people who believe in the humanist vision of the show and who are very attracted to that. And i um, so I think I fall in that category. I know that there are also, um, you know, there are, are military people who come to the convention because for them, they're attracted to like kind of the military narratives. And I find the show to be kind of an interesting challenge to me to think about well, what would I want? Like maybe Starfleet isn't what I want, but I'm glad that the show's got me thinking about that.
1: Yeah. And there's a for me, it's the courage, right? The the mm. absolute almost what 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 I consider to be an almost kind of unhinged um <laughs> bravery um, to project oneself into space, right? I've always been so mesmerized by astronauts because I thought there's a- like, when someone says, what are you more scared of the ocean or this or space? I'm like, 100% space. Like <laughs> there are things in the ocean that might eat you or that your encounter would find marvelous. Um, whereas space feels like this void almost that, that terrifies me. And so I was, I think what I see in Star Trek are these really brave, wildly courageous people who, who thought that, who believed that it was worth taking those risks to, to shoot themselves into who knows where. I think we can learn a lot from that bravery.
2: I, I like your way of putting it. And I think what you raise is kind of, I think there are two, maybe there's more than two ways, but two of the major threads in how we think about, Being spacefaring and space travel is kind of this exciting, deeply human desire to connect with the universe, to understand the universe beyond our atmosphere, to see what's out there, to see if we're alone, all of those like really deep seated questions that I think are very fundamental to who we are as a species. And then there's also, um, I don't know if you've seen the show for all mankind. But there, um, which is uh, the showrunner for All Mankind is Ron D. Moore, who was one of the writers for Star Trek DS9, Deep Space Nine, which I, I think is probably the best Star Trek series so far um, that's been completed. Uh, we haven't seen the other ones completed yet, so I should withhold judgment. Um, and it's an alternate history of NASA in the scenario where the Soviets got to the moon first. And so basically, right. like increasingly, the timeline parts from our timeline. And the show, the production is just like incredible on the show and the show also doesn't question any of the nationalism inherent to the American project. And so I um, I disagree in some sense with the fundamental political ethos of the show, but I also find it to be an interesting thinking ground for, um, like I find myself, I cheer, I cry, I yell at the television. I get really involved, right? Um, because that bravery element is there, but then there's also this like terrible militaristic nationalist garbage can war stuff happening. Um, And I think that we are increasingly at a confrontation between those competing visions.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because I, I was having a conversation um, with Ahmed Best um, a few weeks ago, who's teaching futures at the Stanford D School. And talking about how projecting ourselves, and, and again, with Zinzi Minot a few months ago about this, when Black people project ourselves into the future, to do so is also an act of bravery. And so there seems to also be, um, to your point about, and our point, rather, about the bravery, that the there's a link there to the projection of ourselves into space, which is technically, I guess, into the past, right? If everything is coming at us from the past, do I, do I have that right?
2: That's an interesting, so, when we actually get there, we're with the present, but it's certainly the case that often what we are seeing is light that has taken time to arrive. And so often what we are seeing is, is somewhat in the past, like the sun, don't look at the sun directly. But if you Please. were to look at the sun directly, <laughs> you're looking at it eight minutes ago. Don't look at the sun directly though. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. So there's that threat. There's, we're kind of, we're brave enough as black people, not only to we project ourselves into the future, but to protect ourselves into space.
2: I guess, you know, I'm sitting here and if this were a show, I might actually pick things up and show them to you. But I have like, I have a photo of Sonequa Martin-Green and I together that she has signed. I have a photo of Nichelle Nichols um, as Uhura. Um, And I have also an Uhura Barbie and both the photo and the um, Barbie box are signed um, by Nichelle Nichols. Um, And so there is kind of that element of... Um, being reminded that black aspirations to go to space, um, maybe that's a third, you know, I was saying there were two competing visions, but maybe that's, that's really the third. Like, um, I wrote this essay for the baffler called becoming Martian, um, that came out in January where I had sort of given myself the task of trying to understand what Nikki Giovanni meant when she talked about growing okra on Mars,
1: I mean, yeah. <laughs> because
2: the first time I heard her say that I was like, no, it's colonialism. We can't do, we can't terraform. It's all really bad. And I was like, but obviously Nikki Giovanni doesn't mean that. So I had to give myself the challenge of what does Nikki Giovanni mean? Um, What, what is this, this black vision? And so I went through her poetry, went through her writing where she, I went through interviews where she talks about um, you know if you want to understand what the journey to mars is like then ask the descendants of people who survived the middle passage um and 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 what does she mean by that because i can't take anything in its simplest interpretation coming from nikki giovanni um so i do think that, that that's an important element and that's one of the reasons why for whatever complaints i might have about discovery i still look at discovery and i see a a, a black woman named michael talking her shit in space yeah. like
1: and you and you helped me figure out the point i was trying to make which was that this conversation with ahmed and indeed a, which reflects a kind of broader conversation going on about the future and about space is that we don't also bring with us the more problematic aspects, you know, these these identities we fashioned under duress, um, these lessons that we've learned, these habits that we've picked up, um, that we also run the risk of projecting ourselves into space, into a future only understanding ourselves as we are now, and mm-hmm. not as who we could be.
2: I think something that I've been thinking about a lot. The last few days is there was one episode. Sorry, I'm I'm clearly like very mentally still in my Star Trek space. This a lot. <laughs> there is <was> one episode <laughs> in season two of Discovery called "The Sound of Thunder." I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. I think it's season two, episode six, where um there is uh what alien to us. Um, species called the kelpians and so there's one Kel- one kelpian in all of starfleet and he is i'm um, an officer on board the ship discovery with with michael um, named saru and he is going home to his planet for the first time and there are all these like complicated questions it turns out that his species has been subjugated by another species on the planet And that his species doesn't really know that they have been subjugated. That they've been lied to about when their end of life comes. Um, And the person that he takes with him to the planet to introduce the idea of like aliens exist um, is Michael Burnham. And I think this time watching it, I was really struck by what's interesting about the scenario is that. I am um, the first alien that these Kelpians are going to see. The first human alien that they're going to see is this black woman with natural hair, oh
1: gosh, and
2: yeah. how that moment by itself is unusual in in the history of science fiction on on film and television, where another species first contact on their planet with humans is with a black person first
1: you know what you've kind of just blown my mind because i totally missed that part like i remember that episode it was so emotional (laughs) um yes but i totally and that speaks to the 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 universe of my mind almost right that even if i'm watching a piece of science fiction and i won't be alone in this of course but even if i'm watching a piece of science science fiction it would never have occurred to me that those aliens on that planet hadn't met a white person first, or else didn't know that white people were the kind of quote unquote dominant species as it were um, on planet earth. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think I was I was wow. struck by that partly because I was thinking, you know, one thing about the Kelpians is that they're all the same color. They're not one of the species that has color diversity. Like we see some color diversity in a lot of other species like the Vulcans are color diverse. Um, uh, Klingons are, are co- somewhat color diverse. Um, and we see that throughout the Star Trek universe, but in this particular case, all the Kelpians are this kind of like peach pink color. Um, and so I was looking at this from the perspective of Saru's sister, who is seeing this alien for the first time. And for all she knows, all humans are, um, that beautiful Brown, all humans have that kinky coily hair. Like that, that that is what the norm is, um, and I think it ta- it says something about the viewers and the the version of the the cosmic moment that we live in. That I had to see that episode twice before I had that thought.
1: Right. Yes.
2: I mean, you know, Bob Marley, like uh, mental slavery. Like you're just like even I had to. I didn't understand the story I was watching because I was so used to another story. I know. I love yeah. Sonequa. I just, like, I love her as, like, the embodiment for that moment for me. Yeah,
1: me too. Because she has those things that we want, right? That that are the best of the human, right? This, and I keep referring to bravery because maybe it's something I'm trying to cultivate more of in my life and in myself, that I might be braver in, in how I move through the world. A bravery, I think, that you have as well, right? This persistent um, speaking truth to power, to power and a great personal risk. Um, I'm thinking of what you know the the provenance of this conversation is um the images returned to us from j w s t and I was like every like many people that I did not know there was this work even going on until Twitter became a light, um saying that you know in two days from now on Tuesday, we're getting these images from the. From the hashtag JWST. And I don't know if it's because I've curated my Twitter feed very beautifully and very purposefully, but one of the first articles I saw was that we're not calling it the James Webb uh, Telescope. We're calling it the Just Wonderful Space Telescope. <laughs> <laughs> and so I read the article and it turns out that you have led this charge to call attention to the fact that NASA had named um, a, this important generation-defining telescope after someone who had participated or allegedly participated in um, the Lavender Scare. Um, And for listeners who don't know, might you explain the Lavender Scare?
2: Yeah. So um, this was in parallel with the Red Scare, an endeavor within the federal government to find... Um, you know, so-called homosexuals and other quote sexual deviants, and and fire them and remove them from, from federal service. And um, so James Webb, the the namesake for the telescope, was involved in some of the initial discussions about this as an intermediary between um, the White House and um, the Senate when he was undersecretary of state, so when he was at the State Department. And then he eventually went on to become the NASA administrator who led NASA during the Apollo era and on the Apollo missions. And during that time, um, the Lavender Scare continued. He would have been the person at the top of the hierarchy who was responsible for making sure that all policies were implemented. And specifically, there was one NASA employee named Clifford Norton who was arrested by the police for suspected homosexual activity. And then um, he was picked up from the police station by NASA security, and he was extrajudicially interrogated by NASA security and subsequently fired. And the reason that we know the story is that Norton eventually sued NASA over, over this incident. Um, it wasn't until the 1980s that these um, anti-LGBTQ plus policies stopped being um, seriously enforced. And then they weren't fully, totally repealed until Barack Obama was president. So people might think like, oh, this is like a really old story. But this is one, um, I mean, the past always lives with us. But this is one that is also relatively recent history um, on paper anyway. I am um, So the decision to name this new, what is called within the NASA community, Great Observatory, so the replacement really for Hubble, um, after James Webb, was made by um, George W. Bush's NASA administrator, Sean O'Keefe. He made it behind closed doors by himself. And when asked about it, he said it was because um, James Webb was also a non-scientist who had led NASA, which I don't know, I wouldn't advertise that, but okay. (laughs) Okay. Fair point. <laughs> but it was like a very classic example of I named it after a white dude who reminded me of myself. It's like yeah. totally
1: narcissistic, really. It totally is, and, and that's what whiteness is, right? It requires a narcissism. Um, and I think that I, I read that article and read the the history. I haven't watched the documentary that the Just Space Alliance has created in which you're in, but I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, But I read the article and it was so quick for me just to change the name. I was like, I'm not calling it James, nothing. And so I loved the provocation to call it the Just Wonderful Space Telescope instead. And actually what I think that naming did was, I think it opened me up in a new way to encounter the images that we then saw. I mean, I was absolutely gobsmacked at what I saw and kind of went into this really kind of (laughs) like, deeply introspective space Mm. um (laughs) pun intended um where i was I, i couldn't quite figure out what i was looking at and why it was important and so i started looking for people who could help me make sense of that but one of the things that stood out to me and that i didn't like almost immediately was all of the tweets and TikToks and Instagram reels going around saying we're so small. like All the stuff you're worried about is so small. And I'll like, but we're not small, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like this must mean we're huge.
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, there are a few, you know, the funny thing about just wonderful space telescope as a phrase is that I kind of came up with that on a, like on a whim while I was tweeting on um, Christmas day, 2021, which was the day that I launched into, into space. Um, and You know, as, as a theoretical physicist and who works at the intersection of particle physics and astronomy and astrophysics, it's complicated for me to kind of have this like very public fight with NASA and constantly having to navigate. Actually, I didn't come up with that on Christmas. I'm interrupting myself to say that. I think I came up with that on September 30th. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that it was September 30th of last year, which was memorable for other reasons. I am, but i constantly having to say i have a problem with this name i have a problem with how nasa is handling this level of it but the science is amazing the right. science is amazing um and actually the thing that we had pushed for was we wanted it to be renamed the harriet Tubman space telescope that was actually our our initial and um, that was also an idea that i had and then um luckily my my um Partners in crime were like, yeah, let's let's publish that in Scientific American. And that's what we did. But I don't think we're small. I think we're big. I think Harriet Tubman's big. I think she's so big that we should be sending her name into the cosmos. Like that, you know, going back to our conversation about Star Trek, um, what is the best of us? And Harriet Tubman represents like the best and most badass of us, I think. Um, and in the But it's interesting to hear people say like, oh, we're so small, we're so tiny, we're so insignificant. I'm reading um, an ethnography of people who do exoplanets called um, Placing Outer Space by Lisa Masseri. She's an expert on science, technology, and society studies. And she talks even in the introduction about this idea that we are small is in some ways kind of a propaganda point. It allows us to sell our science in a particular way. And I think this is something that's always important to know is that often um, science involves a lot of sales. Even the idea that there is a basic science that has no social components to it. is uh, essentially like the idea of politically neutral basic science is CIA po- propaganda from the Cold War era. This is something that Audra Wolf outlines beautifully in her book, Freedom's Laboratory. Um, So I think the challenge for us always is to see things for ourselves on terms that we set. Like see Captain Michael Burnham as a representative human, rather than reading Captain Burnham through what we have been taught about who is typically a representative human, right? I think it's the same challenge.
1: My conversation with Dr. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein continues in just a moment.
0: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.
1: I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with theoretical cosmologist and particle physicist, Dr. Chanda prescott weinstein Her book, The Disordered Cosmos, explores her love for physics and presents a vision of the universe that is vibrant, buoyantly non-traditional, and grounded in Black and queer feminist lineages. And so how have Black feminisms helped you look at the cosmos in a different way and understand our place in the cosmos in a perhaps more fulsome way.
2: I think one thing is that Black feminism gives me the vocabulary for that kind of curiosity. I think that often curiosity is not a word that is is used when talking about Black feminism, but I think it should be. I think that's part of my work as, as a Black feminist physicist is to broaden our sensibility about what curiosity means on the physics side, and to understand that Black feminism actually supports that kind of curiosity, which is to ask ourselves these questions of um, what would it mean for me to look at the cosmos through my own lens rather through than through a lens that has been handed to me by the social structures around me? Um, you know, the very first JWST image that we got, um, was what we call a deep field image and this was the one that um they let pre- president biden announce which i get the political in- impulse there but i will just say i don't think it was the best <laughs> way to introduce the public to it that image was like incredible like i wept um it has a ton of gravitational lensing it has maybe the oldest galaxy that we've ever seen in it and the galaxy is so old that it may have totally messed up our models of how galaxies form because a galaxy like that shouldn't exist at that age so it's it that one image is maybe causing us to radically revise our understanding of how we got here how the universe got to this point in time it is a a phenomenal image and so i just want people to look at it with the curiosity of what would it mean to think about this using a language that I develop for myself, that my community develops for itself, not the one that we are handed by people who have a particular set of social alignments and political alignments. And that's not to say that the laws of physics are going to be different, but it may be that the spiritual experience of engaging with that image is different. I am and so I think black feminism, and specifically I wanna name black queer feminism, um, calls on us to question what we have been told. And that is a deeply scientific impulse.
1: Mm, because you you write in the book a lot about you know, your work as a physicist being one of noticing patterns, right? And that and, and then you kind of very beautifully explicate like all these patterns that then impact not only your lived experience as a black queer agent or um, woman, but also as a Black queer agender um, feminist physicist as well, trying to make sure that all Black children have access to the night sky.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, the funny thing about a book, I had a conversation with Imani Perry about this and she was like, look, you write and publish a book to find out what book you wish you had written and published. (laughs) (laughs) Because like by the time the book comes out, you have moved, right? So Mm -hmm. I wrote The Disordered Cosmos, I wrote the first draft in twenty, um, in twenty eighteen. I think, um, I guess actually in twenty nineteen. God, it seems like a bajillion years ago. And it's time has done I this thought, crazy
1: thing actually over the course of the pandemic, like yes. it slowed down but also expanded. A, I've heard that way. that's
2: actually a trauma reaction, like psychologically, like oh. our inability to perceive time in the way that we did before is actually related to our brain trying to reckon with the trauma of the pandemic. Wow. So I just I and I am someone who was already living with PTSD going into it. So I totally acknowledge that <laughs> my all PTSD has right. just like been pushed. The buttons are just getting pushed in all the different ways. Um, but I think I so I will just say I was not well read on queer theory when I wrote the book. I would still say that I'm not particularly well read on queer theory. That's something that I'm actively endeavoring to rectify. I'm. And part of it is related to you aging as a queer person. I just turned 40 a few weeks ago. And thank you. And I'm... You know, I think when I was younger, it felt like there was all this possibility of writing queerness into my life. Like when my wife and I got married, um that there was this going to be this like fundamental, inherent, like very public queerness to my life. And then we got divorced, and that fell away in in a way, right? I'm, I ended up, I'm married to a man. I'm a Republican's worst nightmare. I'm, by the time we die, he will no longer be straight. I'm just working on it. (laughs) Like, I just, I don't believe in straightness. Like ideologically, I I just, I don't believe in it. Um, and, And he's cool with that. We're working, but I, and I think having those conversations about like how that was socially constructed for him and, and, and what that means. Right. Um, but then trying to figure out what does that mean for me as a queer person if the rest of my life is spent in a relationship with a man. Um, and so obviously some of that is me working through the biphobia that that I have been taught and is is built into our communities. Um, But I think some of that is also related to a very superficial understanding of queerness that only understands queerness through the lens of like who you happen to be either in that moment fucking or um, in general cohabitating with. And that is not the total extent of queerness. And I think that's something that I wish I had more of a capacity to reckon with when I was writing the disorder cosmos, but will definitely, I think, find its way into other texts as I'm as I move forward.
1: And so how are you understanding the cosmos more queerly since your since the release of the book and since your foray into a more deeper, closer, we should say, understanding of queer theory?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I think you know, the funny thing is there's, so there's one chapter, I think it's either chapter three or chapter four. It's called Space Time Isn't Straight.
1: That's right. Yeah. There's a really so the title. I highlighted a passage about, which I thought was just so clear about um, time being um, subjected based on the flow of one's period.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, which I put that in there because it made me uncomfortable. I was like, I don't want to talk about my period. And I was like, <laughs> that's, and that's, that's why that this should actually stay there because why not? Yeah, right. Why not? I'm, and I think part of queerness is being like, actually, maybe my comfort zone is stupid. (laughs) And (laughs) I'm, and realizing like the boundaries that we've been taught are a problem. And so one could say that that's, that's, that's simply feminism. But I don't think that feminism really does that without queerness. Like, I, I don't think that you can separate those things. But with the title of that chapter, Space Time Isn't Straight. I actually texted Brian Shuvey, who is a white gay um, man, who's also a theoretical physicist. We're pretty good friends. As a joke, I was like, I can't name this chapter. Space time isn't straight. Right. And he was like, why not? (laughs) And so I think that there's also just like that dynamic of us bonding with each other, particularly as queer scientists, led to me feeling like I had permission to be cheeky in certain ways that I might not... I wouldn't have sent that text to a straight person, and mm-hmm. and to know that Brian is solid as a scientist, that he was going to tell me if that was like scientifically a bad idea, like if it was going to give people the wrong impression, and so that specific synergy of being able to trust him both as um, a queer person and as a fellow theoretical physicist, um, and and therefore as a specific type of confidant um that i think that, that that's one of the ways that those those things come together and i i don't know i i don't think it's fully made its way into the mainstream how important i'm um, queer confidants between queer people so i'm not talking about like oh i have my gay bestie right. but like hmm. not i'm not talking about serving straight people yes i'm talking about those dynamics between us and so Probably my thinking and talking about this right now is very heavily influenced by Jafari S. Salins, um, There's a Disco Ball Between Us, Mm. A Theory of Black Gay Life, which I just want to hand out like candy, um, because (laughs) he, he writes that into the book, even in the decision that he made to use first names.
1: That's right. Cause I said, I didn't feel like I should be able to call him Jafari. And he was like, if I call Audrey Lord, Audrey, you can call him <laughs>
2: Jafari. <laughs> it would be pretty pretty wild, not beyond the realm of possibility with academics for him to be right. a little bit hypocritical on that, yeah. but it's so nice <laughs> that he's not like that kind of person. <laughs>
1: um, I am speaking of, of queer theory, um, as you can see on my neck, I have um, queer, Q-U-A-R-E. And when Busy Being Black started four years ago, the tagline was, um, living in the fullness of our queer black lives Mm -hmm. and black queer theory in particular plays and has played such an enormous role in how I've developed over the course of the podcast. Yes, but also in my life more broadly. And I decided that, you know, when, when this conversation airs, the tagline will be an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. Now, Queer was put forward by E. Patrick Johnson. And oh my God, listeners must be so bored of me talking about this right now. But (laughs) queer was put forward by E. Patrick Johnson. Keep teaching. In 2002, in his essay, queer studies were almost everything I learned about queer studies I learned from my grandmother. And he puts forward queer as a very specific word to talk about the very specific experiences of queer Black and Brown people, those who are particularly attuned to the deeply necessary political education we need to have if we're going to survive and create the futures we want. So you open Disordered Cosmos. And if this is a reach and doesn't make any sense, just tell me. But your first chapter in the Disordered Cosmos is called I Love Quarks. And so quarks, as I understand them, are these building blocks for other things (laughs) i'm not a scientist that's fair they're like a building blocky thing that makes other things possible right and so i saw this parallel or this connection to queerness as well right that black and brown queer people latinx asian of the african diaspora of the west indian irish diaspora we are and continue to be foundational not only to theory but to our understanding of space in the cosmos, to our understanding of what great conversations can can feel like, and to what a new future could look like, and so I don't know. Do you do you see a parallel there too? Am I am I trying to make meaning of a thing?
2: <laughs> you know, um, I think the thing that jumps out at me is the the expression of creativity within the context of um the colonial English language, um. Which I'm thinking, so the word "quark" comes from James Joyce's Ulysses, right? And um, I have I have done my my trip to Dublin and to to James Joyce's house, and um, I am I think of the significance of Irish cultural struggle in the context of English and in the context of of British colonialism, um, and and similarly. Um, those of us uh, across the Americas and now really across the world who are descended from those who were kidnapped from Africa, or people who may um, have descent on both sides, uh, uh, for example, people with Irish heritage um, who are also of of African, um, like Caribbean and American heritage. Um, That I think a lot about that um, Adrian Rich line, Adrian Rich line, um, this is the oppressor's language yet. I need it to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And yes, um, that's <laughs> that, that that's part of the work that E. Patrick Johnson is doing, right? Which is like, what is a word for us and by us? That is also in the context of this language that we share with these people who often don't think of us or don't care to think of us. Um, and that similarly, James Joyce was just a king of, um, you know, playing with language and so I, I do see. I like. I'm just still even just thinking about where the words came from. I think that there is already that piece. Um, and then I, you know, the so you described quarks as like these building block things, which I really like. So specifically, um, neutrons and um, protons are made from quarks, right? So um, electrons are a little bit different. They're actually they don't. You can't break them into smaller pieces but you can break protons and neutrons into smaller pieces. And this is what quarks are. So I think that was a beautiful summary okay, that perfect. they are. And this is actually, I think how I described them in my Ted talk um, was that they were fundamental building blocks in, in, in the universe. Um, and so I think that there are these kinds of parallel questions about how do we construct ourselves? And that again, black feminism and specifically black queer feminism teaches us to think about self-construction in a very conscious way as opposed to thinking of being handed a self and i think queerness fights the idea of being handed a self Mm i am i think that you know those of us who are gender deviant gender variant gender dropouts that we are refusing the self that we were handed and articulating ourselves for ourselves. And that is a queer act. And again, that's why who you're having sex with is not the end of the conversation, because it's also uh, about breaking out of heterosexual normativity more broadly. Um, So I, I see that connection. And I think, you know, quirks are fucking weird. <laughs> Sorry, I, I've been guessing a lot. They're like, they're Please. super weird. The 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 universe on that level is like not at all intuitive. And so the idea that um straightness is what's normal, that's so superficial and mm-hmm. and, and, and and lazy. One thing that I wish I had come up with in time for the book. Um, was talking about how neutrinos are non-trinary. This is something I've written about a couple of times in my new scientist column and okay. will definitely make its way into my book. But neutrinos will just randomly turn into another type of neutrino, like while they're traveling. Neutrinos are they're they're strange little creatures. They're very hard to catch. Bananas make them, so they just like naturally from um, the breakdown of potassium and bananas. There are neutrinos that's like flying out of your banana. Um, they interact very infrequently, so you have neutrinos flying through your body right now. It's doing nothing to your body. You're fine. You're safe. You're good. Um, and while they're flying through you, they may be transitioning into three. There are three different types and they may just be moving the from electron neutrino to muon neutrino to tau neutrino um and we don't know why we don't know exactly what their mass is we don't know why they flip types so i was like you guys these are totally non-trinary like (laughs) (laughs) i love
1: that (laughs) but again we we keep seeing all these reaffirmations right that these feelings, as you say, are our siblings who are like yourself, who are gender dropouts, right? I love that way of saying it, gender dropouts. I read the gender accelerationist manifesto on the Anarchist Library and was absolutely like electrified to see that actually, um, you know, the that gayness, gay men are not flouting sexual norms, they're flouting gender norms. We are flouting mm. gender norms. So I love this idea of gender dropouts. Um But we keep seeing over and over again that so many items, articles, particles, animals, plants, the things that surround us and and make this kind of vibrant world that we live among and in, um, so many things don't abide by any arbitrary rules. And we are the outliers here, right? We are the ones who've constructed and choose to abide by these rules.
2: I I absolutely think that you know, something that I'm just coming into my understanding. And again, I think there's a disco ball between us was an enormously rich text for helping me think about this. I am is understanding that my queerness is written into the fact of my engagement with the world and the way that I proactively choose to engage the world. I am in a non-normative way. I am which I think raises like really interesting questions about people who have tried to get into homonormativity, about people who are trying to, you know, effectively be a street person who happens to be gay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and not willing to reckon with, you know, I, I, I often think about how people don't really talk in the mainstream anyway about the connection between homophobia and um, misogyny. Which is really the objection to gay men is that they're too much like women, right? Yes, like that yes. that is on on some level. And the objection to to lesbians and and more broadly to, to queer women and also to to queer men is that um people are not performing their relationships under patriarchy correctly. Um, right. Like if you're a woman, how dare you try and take the power of, of being butch, of being more masculine. And if you are someone who was assigned male at birth, like how dare you be one of like those weak women. Right. And all of that is deeply tied to misogyny. And we don't talk about that piece of it, but um, if we continue to, you know, center these stories of like, accept me, I'm just like you. We never have that conversation. That's why I think like it's beautiful that you have queer on your neck. I hope it's okay that I'm saying that. Of course, yeah. (laughs) You have queer on your neck because it's really like fuck you. I'm never gonna be like you.
1: That's right.
2: I'm gonna be like me. That's right. Right. And and not in a like selfish capitalist way. In a collectivist, this is how we make the collective of us.
1: Own your shit, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Own it. What you. And that's queer too, I think, right? This this desire to stand up above the parapet and say, you know what? I'm going to put myself out here. I'm going to try. I'm going to be vulnerable under duress. I'm going to keep being vulnerable. I'm going to keep showing up. And I'm going to keep trying to be the thing I know I can be. Even if, as we're learning, there's a limitation to what that can be in the world that we live. And so we have to keep agitating for more. But yeah, I appreciate you saying that a lot. Thank you. Um, I have, we're almost out of time. And so... I normally ask all my guests what they hope for. Um, But I also, I guess I have two questions left because I was really moved um, and am moved by the story you tell of going to Joshua Tree with your mom and the kind of how you know now that she had to give up so much to make that happen. And also by what you saw with your dad when... You went camping with him, and him not knowing that, or you not knowing that that was the Milky Way you were looking at, and you open up to say that you want the night sky to be accessible for um, all black children, right? And it made me think of the other morning. I, I'm I always I'm always awoken between two and three. It's normally the chatter of the ancestors, like the witching mm. hour, or what I call la madrugada, because it's a nice way of saying it. And uh, I was awoken and. I heard, go look outside. So I went upstairs and onto the balcony and opened. It was such a clear sky and like I could see all these stars. And one of them was shining so brightly. So I grabbed my phone and I have the I have an app that helps me see like what's yeah. in the sky. Sky view. Awesome. Um, and it was Jupiter, the planet of luck and mm. abundance. And I can't stop smiling. Right, like <laughs> I just thought, well, what a gift, right, that I get to see Jupiter or well, see Jupiter, um, and that. I was awoken to be reminded that the planet of luck and abundance is shining down on me. And so I wanna invite you as we close to talk about what it means for you when you say that you want all black children to have access to the night sky.
2: When we think about what it would take in order to create the conditions where any Black child can have access to a dark night sky and truly experience that dark night sky in the fullness that they will experience it as themselves, it requires a radical revision of our social structures because it means talking about making sure that that child has the mobility device that they need. If there's someone who needs a mobility device, it means having accessible public transportation that can transport that mobility device. If they live in an urban area, um, it means the child cannot be hungry. It means that they've had adequate access to clean water. Um, it means that they are not worried about the safety of their family members And that requires us to think about incarceration and the way that, um, incarcerating any member of a child's family negatively impacts the child. So let's say you don't want to show any regard to the humanity of incarcerated people. Um, if you care about the children, then you have to, um, because children can tell when the humanity of those around them is being disregarded and it impacts them and it impacts their ability to focus and have childhoods. So there are so many different things. I'm, and you know, I'm not just thinking only about black children, although for me, as someone who once was a black child, that is a thinking space for me. But I'm also thinking about, you know, I'm our, our black and indigenous fam. Um, so our our black Choctaw um, and Seminole fam. Um, and what it means for them to fully experience that night sky, feeling safe on the land of their people, their ancestors. Um, it just, that one thing can really make us think about what does, what needs to be different.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about awe because what you've just spoken to there what you've just spoken to there sometimes looking up into the night sky is is a singular individual thing right like so many of us might be alone when, when we're looking into the sky and in doing so we may forget or not think about the fact that we're actually one of billions looking at the night sky and that yeah, I don't know that that feels really profound to me, like, and, and WST re- reveals that to us too. that it ignited this conversation where all of us were going, what does this mean?
2: And we co-create that night sky experience, right? Like urban lighting policy affects what part of the light, night sky that you can see. I'm um, It matters that um, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos don't have to get many people's permission before they launch tens of thousands of satellites um, into the sky that are shifting what happens when you look through a telescope from the ground. Um, So we may at any given moment feel like we're alone when we are looking at the night sky, but the night sky that we are looking at has been collectively produced um by a series of community and sometimes um individual choices or the community that has been able to dominate those decisions is too small. And so I think, you know, the night sky that we look at is in part produced by capitalism. So to go to your maybe to your question about asking people what, you know, what do they hope for? Um I I want to be done with capitalism. I think it's 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 bad for us. It's bad for every other species Um, and I want to be done with it in a way that um, invests in caring and not killing as the global women's strike puts
1: it. Chanda, thank you so much for your time and for going on this wonderful journey with me today. I feel really enchanted and really honored and lucky to um, share um, digital space with you and to share the planet with you. Um, so thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is assistant professor of physics and a core faculty member in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. Her book, The Disordered Cosmos, explores her love for physics and presents a vision of the universe that is vibrant, buoyantly non-traditional, and grounded in Black and queer feminist lineages. You'll find links to Chanda's work and The Disordered Cosmos in the show notes. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music.